Father, we thank you for this time and we pray very much that by your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see what these things mean for us today. Help us to see the Lord Jesus in these words and see what it means to follow him as our King. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every nation gets the government it deserves. Those are the words of the 19th century French philosopher uh, Joseph de Maistre. And I guess whatever the outcome in the US election, we may well hear that quote a few times. And it's worth reflecting on with, with, with regard to other institutions, to, uh, to churches, to businesses. Do we get the leaders that we deserve? In other words, assuming people have responsibility for choosing those who lead them in some way, it's easy to see why it might be true that we choose leaders who suit our own desires. How can we do otherwise, actually? And that's certainly what we've been seeing in 1 Samuel. Uh, this nation of Israel desired a king like the other nations who would lead them into battle. A king that looked outwardly impressive, a king they could be proud of, rather than trusting in the God who had saved them countless times. Last time we saw how God then gave them what they asked for. Even though he warned them that it would turn out badly, he gave them over to their desires. And they got the king that they wanted. And now in, in chapters 13 to 15, we begin to see the king that they want unravel. Sometimes we are warned that a particular course of action is going to end in disaster. And we decide to do it anyway. Maybe it's just me that does that. But I think we, we kind of know that, don't we? And the thing is, though, sometimes when that happens, actually, the sky doesn't fall on our heads. Everything just seems to sort of carry on as if everything's fine. And we think, oh, hmm, maybe it was okay after all to do that. Well, if we're, if we're ever tempted to think like that, these chapters are here to warn us to think again. When God says something will end in disaster, it will end in disaster. Not necessarily straight away, not necessarily today, not necessarily tomorrow, but it will end in disaster. And so we see that here with God's people. In, in chapter 13, as we heard uh, Christy read for us, we come to the heart of the matter with the king that they want. The heart of the matter, God's king must be obedient. God's king must be obedient. Back, back in chapter 10, Samuel gave Saul instructions about fighting the Philistines at Gilgal. And he told him to go there and he said, wait seven days for Samuel to come before sacrificing burnt offerings. Seven days. Now, this is really key to this chapter. You have to wait seven days. And that's a long time to wait 
when you've got an entire Philistine army uh, standing there waiting to annihilate you. And you're thinking, what do we do? What do we do? Do we attack? Do we wait? And he's been told, you've got to wait seven whole days. And the men of Israel were so scared that they hid in caves and thickets and pits and cisterns. Verse 6. And verse 7, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And so, uh, verse 8, he waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, back in chapter 10. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So you, can you imagine how Saul is beginning to feel? He's getting restless, because he's meant to be Israel's king. He's meant to be Israel's leader. And what he can see around him is... Uh, his army is beginning to kind of give up and scatter. He's losing control. And, and he's waited, but he can only wait so long. And you can imagine him, can't you? You can imagine him sort of pacing up and down. Is Samuel here yet? Has anyone seen Samuel? Make sure you tell me when Samuel arrives. Where is Samuel? And so look at verse 10. Can you see that? Uh, he waits six and a half days before taking matters into his own hands. And and just as he uh, finishes making the offering, who should appear but Samuel? And it's hard not to feel a bit of sympathy for Saul at this point. Because what does he say? He says, I I waited, and I, I, I waited, and you didn't come, Samuel. So I felt compelled to sort this out myself and offer the burnt offering. You didn't want to let the army disperse completely, did you? I'm a man of action, Samuel. I had to get something done. But the verdict comes in verse 13. Look at verse 13. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. So do you see what's happened? He nearly waited seven days, but he didn't quite do it. And we can tell that because of the way Samuel responds to him uh, when he arrives. And he's already taken the initiative to do the sacrifice. And so you you think, do you you feel slightly sorry for him? Is there no room for taking the initiative at all in, in God's kingdom? Well, there is plenty of room for taking the initiative, but not when that contradicts a direct command of God. That is the problem here. Saul is someone who, when push comes to shove, cannot bring himself to trust God. See, when push comes to shove, Saul thinks he knows best. Now, if we're feeling generous towards Saul, we, we, we might think that in his position, well, we, we might have done the same. What, what else can he do? And, and, and there are times, aren't there, when it can, it can be very hard to trust God. It can almost be impossible to take him at his word on something when our circumstances around us just seem to make that absolutely impossible. 
So God says it is more blessed to give than to receive. He says that he exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. He says that the path to glory is to be marked by suffering and service and sacrifice. And when we hear that, it can be so hard to really take God at his word, can't it? It's just easier to, you know, sometimes to, you know, we, can get, we can go 90% of the way and then just hold back a little bit as a little bit of an insurance policy. I, I, I'm not sure if God will provide for me, so I'll just give a little bit less. I'll hold on to just a bit of glory for myself instead of completely denying myself in order to follow Jesus. And the point is not that we just need to try a little bit harder. You know, come on everybody, let's get that 90% up to 100%. Let's get that six and a half days up to the full seven. Like borderline students being kind of coached from, you can get, you can get beyond that B grade, you can make it to the A grade. No, that's not the point. The point is... God's people desperately need a king who is able to do what they cannot do. Who is able to trust God when all is lost or looks lost. Who is able to obey God when the rest of us would run in the opposite direction. See, that's the kind of king God's people need. It's the kind of king that we need. But what we're seeing here is that that isn't Saul. And that's why that Samuel tells him that the kingdom will be taken from him and given to a man after God's own heart. Now those words, after God's own heart, are an interesting phrase. They're often heard to mean that the king needed to be someone who, who would have God in his heart, as it were, who would be obedient. But actually, literally, they say, a king according to God's heart. And we'll think more about this next time when we look at chapter 16. See, the point is that the king that God's people need is the one who is according to God's heart, who is God's choice and not their choice. That's what, a, that's what the king after God's own heart is, the one who God chooses for them, not the one they choose for themselves. The king that God has in his heart. The problem all along has been that the king they want is not the king that they need. That is the heart of the matter. God's king must be obedient. Now we're going to skip over chapter 14, which gives us a, a contrast between the faithless Saul and the faithful Jonathan. And then finally, we're going to look just a little bit at chapter 15 as we see the decline and fall of the people's choice of king. Now, you're going to need to follow with me. If you've got the Bible open in front of you in some way, just try and follow with me as we look at these verses a little bit. So, so here's the second thing from chapter 15. Decline and fall as God's king is rejected. So far, what we've seen is there's, there's this fundamental problem with Saul. He's not obedient. And, and in chapter 15, this comes to a head. So, verse 1, Samuel comes to Saul and he says, verse 1, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint 
you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. And there's a, there's a little reminder there of how things ought to be. Do you see that the people of Israel are not Saul's people, but they are God's people. See, Saul was anointed by Samuel. He didn't receive his position by right. And so therefore, verse 2, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. And then verse 3, Go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now I think, to our modern ears, that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? As God gives that command through Samuel. And there's plenty we could say on these commands that we, we find in the Old Testament where God tells the Israelites to slaughter his enemies. And if, if you want to ask about that in the Q&A that we'll have afterwards, please do. But the, the, the basic point is the Amalekites weren't innocent. They were Israel's enemies and most of all they were God's enemies. Enemies of his plans not just for Israel but enemies of his plans through Israel for the rest of the world. They were trying to stop that from happening. And in many ways, these acts of judgment are just pictures of the judgment that all of us guilty human beings deserve before God. Now, there's more we can say about that and do ask about that later, but that isn't actually what we really need to see here. The point that we need to see is that Saul, as God's king, has been given a command by God to bring about this judgment. Saul's been told, you are the agent of this judgment that the Amalekites deserve. You need to bring this judgment on them. But what does he then do with this command? Well, skip forwards, verse 7. He attacks them. And verse 8, he takes... Agag, the king, alive. Now, hang on a minute. Is that what he's been told to do? What was he told to do? He was told to kill everybody. And uh, he does kill the rest of the people, but he takes Agag, the king, alive. Hmm, well, we'll see about that. Verse 9, he spares Agag, and he also spares the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs. In other words, he thinks, it's a bit of a waste, isn't it, to, to just kill all this healthy livestock that they capture. Surely we could you know, use this in a slightly more useful way than just simply annihilating everything. So he thinks that. What then is God's response? Well, verse 11, have a look. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. So do you see, it's exactly the same thing that we began to see in chapter 13. Here is a king who is not obedient, who, who takes matters into his own hands, who thinks, mm, I'm not sure, God, if that's the right way to do it. I think we need to do it this way. And what happens then is you get this almost comic scene between Samuel and Saul. Comic if it weren't quite so tragic. So verse 13 Saul talks a good talk. So here he is, and um, 
uh, he, he, uh, Samuel reaches him and Saul says, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And uh, verse 14, Samuel then replies, well, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? See, Saul is a, a, a first-class improviser. Oh, oh, Samuel, he says, we, we, we saved these for a sacrifice to God. You know, surely no one could argue with that. But, but Samuel goes on, you were given the instruction to slaughter everything and you held back. Not even a burnt sacrifice matters as much as simply doing what God says. So look at verse 22. Um, the, uh, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And although Saul makes some protests and he says he's very sorry and, you know, he's going to make everything right, I have sinned, I will, you know, and he tries to explain why it happened. I was afraid of the people. I gave in to them. They, you know, they, 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 they tricked me. They got me to follow them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel says, no, that's not going to happen. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. He says again, verse 26. And uh, then verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. And then a slightly puzzling verse in the light of the rest of the chapter, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, the word for changing his mind is the word for repenting, and actually it's the same word as both verse 11 and the final verse of the chapter, verse 35, where it says that the Lord grieved that he'd made Saul king. The word, word for grieving there is the same word for changing his mind. So God is the God who both repents and within a few verses, does not repent. Who both does not change his mind, and yet grieves the king who has rejected him. So is that just a blatant contradiction, as people love to find? Well, well you know, the Bible writers weren't idiots, were they? And the intention certainly is to make us sit up and listen and think, well, how, you know, this is, uh, how can this be? What does it mean? But the, po the point is, this is precisely what God had warned would happen all along. The king you want is a king who will take and a king who will fail, they were warned. But then God gave them what they asked for anyway. What, and then what God said would happen, happened. Of course it did. So on the one hand, God, what God said would happen, happened. But that doesn't then stop God from being grieved when what Saul ends up, uh, when, when Saul ends up being exactly the type of king 
that he said he would be. It's still something that brings pain to God. Back in in Genesis chapter 6, the same language is used of God, that as he saw the wickedness of mankind, he was grieved and he was sorry that he made mankind at all. And what followed was the flood. Ezekiel 18.23 says that God does not desire the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wickedness and live. That is his longing. That is his desire. It is his will that no one should perish. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. So all of that is true. But he, he, it is, there's a sense in which the Bible says it grieves him when people turn their backs on him. He's not just impersonal and un, uh, unaffected by these things. And yet, he is a God of justice who will see that justice is done. And sometimes that justice, that wrath, involves him giving his people what is not good for them in a short-term, limited sense. As Jesus gazed over disobedient, rebellious Jerusalem, uh, who, who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to them, we read in the Gospels, he grieved for them. As he stood at the graveside of Lazarus and saw the full horror of death, he wept. And as we find ourselves dealing with the consequences of living in a fallen world and dealing with our own sin in all the pain of spoilt relationships with God and with one another, we can be confident of two things. One is that God is deeply grieved by sin and disobedience. We do not heed his warnings and it grieves him. But the other is that all is not lost, even in greatest mess. His plans are not shaken. His plan is able to continue. And in that sense, he does not change his mind. It's not as if us pulling back on what we're supposed to have done makes God go, oh no, I better find a plan B. No, it's plan A all the time. Plan A all the way through. And yet, as he watches his people do what he knew they would do, he grieves. Now, I don't know how you feel about after hearing this story of Saul. As we said, in one sense, it's easy to feel sympathy for him. He, he waited six and a half days, but not seven. He, he saved just the animals, which seemed so useful for a sacrifice to God. It's really not that bad, is it? Six and a half out of seven, well, that's 92.8%. It's nearly perfect, isn't it? Which of us would have done any better? If Saul is not good enough with his 90%, what hope is there for the rest of us? Well, actually, that is the point. See, we desperately need a king. We need a leader who is not like us, who fears God, not men, 100% of the time, no matter how difficult the circumstances, who is 100% obedient to all of God's commands, no, no matter how personally inconvenient. And that person is not any of us. It's not me. It's not you. Ultimately, that person has to be God's person, anointed by God, enabled to follow and serve him 100%. So you see, Saul, on his own terms, kind of looks okay until we hold him up against the king who was always obedient, even to death, to death on a cross, who said, Father, as we heard in the second reading, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me, and yet not my will, but yours 
be done. And his obedience isn't just in stark contrast to our human disobedience and failure. Actually, his obedience, in the end, is our obedience too when we trust in this King Jesus. Because when we trust in the King that we need, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failure and our sin and our 90% or our 20% or our 1%. He sees Jesus. And that is the King that we need. So let's pray now. Father, we praise you that you do not give us what we deserve. And that as we continue in sin against you, although you grieve, you grieve our sin. We praise you that that doesn't throw you off your plan. That you will give us and you have given us the king that we need. Thank you that in Jesus we have life. We have a fresh start. We have his perfect obedience credited to us so that when we trust in him we can know with confidence that you love us and accept us in spite of our sin in spite of our failures in spite of the ways that we act like Saul and worse may we then trust in Jesus and not ourselves because he's the king that we need Amen.